Well, I've been looking forward to getting to this series. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, looking at the book of, of, of Deuteronomy. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is another neglected book. It, it is a book of Moses that's neglected like Leviticus and like Numbers and the back half of Exodus, for that matter. Uh, because I think sometimes we just have the wrong idea of really what the book is about. Uh, sometimes what we do is we'll say, well, it's just simply a restatement of all the laws that we've already studied and at the end of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And I think it's important that we would spend some time talking about why uh, this book is going to be so important for us. And after doing that, then we'll spend some time uh, this evening looking at, at chapter 1. There's not a lot of books in the Bible where you feel like you have to defend yourself as to why you're teaching through it. But I think this is one of them. Uh, because I think you just have this natural tendency to go, well, if in my Bible reading, if I somehow made it through Exodus and survived Leviticus, and made it to numbers. Boy, Deuteronomy can be rough because it just seems like it's, there's no story. It's just rules and laws and regulations. There's no movement of the people. The people aren't going anywhere. There's no Nadab and Abihu story to break it up or something like that. It's just straight God's laws all the way through. So I want us just to spend a couple minutes talking about why this would be so important for our studies. First of all, the, the New Testament importance to this book is actually pretty staggering. Uh, Jesus quoted from this book more than any other book that he quoted from. And I think that should also just be a little bit startling to us is that when he talks about laws and quotes from God's word and saying things about what does it say or have you not heard or things like that, he's usually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, it's important to think about that when Jesus is tempted three times in the wilderness, you might recognize that all three quotations do not go to Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers, but from Deuteronomy. All three quotes. Every time that he defeats Satan in responding, he quotes from this book. So I think that's that's part of it, its importance. But not only that, the New Testament writers themselves quote from it almost 200 times. And so while we kind of might in our minds think, oh, Deuteronomy doesn't really have a lot of relevance, the New Testament doesn't think so at all. And neither did Jesus. Jesus uses it the most. New Testament writers quote from it almost the most. It's in a pretty close second or third place to the Psalms. And so it's pretty interesting how often they rely upon it. Not only is the New Testament depend upon it heavily, uh, the, the book itself, when given a, a proper lens and a proper under Understanding of the book, I think helps us see how valuable it is. Unfortunately, some of these books of the law of Moses, these books of Moses, these names that they're given kind of hang us up. Like we talked about when we went through Numbers. Numbers sounds really boring, as if that's what the book is all about, even though there's only a census at the beginning and a census at the end. The Septuagint came along, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called it Numbers, and forever we are stuck with the name Numbers, though the Hebrews, the Jews, never called it that. But we're given Numbers, and we kind of go, oh, well, it's only about Numbers, when actually it's not at all. Deuteronomy sits in the same frame. Deuteronomy kind of roughly translates into second law. And so what we have the tendency to do is go, oh, well, it's just Moses giving the law again. 
And really, that's not at all what he's doing with this. Many scholars have called Deuteronomy the Romans of the Old Testament. Uh, And that should be somewhat eye-opening to us because it is full of theological truths. Ultimately, what Moses is doing is not standing up and saying, let me tell you those laws all over again because I know you need to hear it because you're the next generation. That's not his goal at all. In fact, notice in chapter 1 and verse 5, and notice that this tells us what Moses is doing. Deuteronomy 1 verse 5, Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain the law. Or some translations say expound on the law. It's not that Moses gets up and gives the laws all over again. What Moses does is preaches a sermon. And he explains the law to the new generation. It's not a retelling of the laws, but now preaching. Here's how you are supposed to understand those laws. Hence, the Romans of the Old Testament idea. is These are the sermons of Moses, which ought to be particularly fascinating to us, because if you've been with us in the Sunday nights, and we've followed Moses, and we've seen him as the mediator, we've seen him doing all of these wonderful works on behalf of God, and for God, and by the power of God, but we don't get to hear Moses say an awful lot. He's usually just doing a lot. And now in Deuteronomy, Moses stands up and he preaches some sermons to the people and he explains the law and tells them everything that happened in the wilderness. You now get Moses' perspective. Here's what happened. Here's why things went the way they went. Here's why God did what he did. And ultimately, the book of Deuteronomy is here's why we're standing right here right now. Here's how we got to this point. And so it's an excellent explanation of God's law, as well as communicating to the people. Here's what happened. As one of the few survivors of the prior generation, let me tell you everything that transpired while we were in the wilderness. The third reason why then to study the book of Deuteronomy is its tremendous theological importance. When we started Exodus, I I said to you, the book of Exodus is really God's template for how he's going to save the world. In Exodus, by God saving Israel, you are being given a picture how God was going to rescue his people again. And so you get this, here are my people, they are enslaved, and God is going to send a mighty leader who's going to save the people through mighty works and deliver them and bring them the salvation that they need. It's the template of our salvation, our rescue from slavery. When we came to Numbers, I said to you, Numbers is our story. As Christians, we've already experienced the spiritual exodus. We've already come out of slavery. We know that Jesus has come as the new Moses who has delivered his people. And now we are in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And we are reading in Numbers about how Israel fell short in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul quotes that on a number of occasions talking about don't be like them who fell in the wilderness, but I'll go make it all the way. And so Numbers was not just merely a retelling of Israel's history, but it's our story also. Well, let me propose to you that Deuteronomy 
is also the same for us as well. That it continues to be the picture of our story through the lens of Israel. Because now, what Moses stands up and preaches is very important. How do you move from the wilderness to the promised land? All of Numbers was us traveling on our way to the promised land, on our way, here we go, we're going. And now finally we're at the brink. As the book opens, we're just on the other side of the Jordan. And we are just about to enter the promised land. In fact, when we corroborate the beginning of Deuteronomy to what's told to us in Joshua, they're going to cross the land in two months. So these are the final words. And in two months, Israel goes in. And the message then of the book is how do you move from the wilderness and actually get to enter the promised land? Or to put that in some kind of theological terms, we're moving from the grace that we have experienced in the Exodus to now the faith that's needed to be in the promised land. We're moving from the uh, deliverance that we've experienced now to the obedience that's required. The good news of salvation now demands a response. And so over and over again, what Deuteronomy is going to show to us that the way to enter the promised land is by the power and the instruction of God. Over and over again, Deuteronomy is going to say, you need to not forget what God has done. You need to remember what God has said and you need to obey. This is going to be the large framework of what the book is attempting to do. And ultimately the call that Moses makes to the people in each of his sermons is that you need to respond with unreserved loyalty and love to God for all that he's done. If you want to enter this promised land and if you want to enjoy all that God has to offer, then it is a requirement then... To respond with love and loyalty to your God. So the book is extremely important. And I look forward then in going through this book with you and seeing a lot of these amazing themes. Let's begin with the first five verses. And you'll notice then what Moses does is we see as this introduction begins is it wants to set up for us exactly where we are. And there is a great amount of irony that Deuteronomy begins with. You will notice Deuteronomy opens with the words that these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness of Arabah opposite Suf between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizhab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to all the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Asheroth and in Edri. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain the law, saying, let's stop there. Did you see the irony? Notice that verse 3 tells us we are now in the 11th month of the 40th year. The 40-year wilderness wandering, we are at the very end. It's the 11th month. The book of Joshua will say they enter the land then in the first month of the 41st year. So that's why we're two months away at this point. So here we are at the very end of all of this. But notice what verse 2 said. It was only an 11-day journey. (laughs) 
How interesting that Deuteronomy opens with. Now, I want you to know something. It's 11 days to get to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year. (laughs) In the 11th month of the 40th year. We have gone the very long way to get to this point. We could have been here in a week and a half. But instead, we have taken 40 years to come back around and get to this point where we are at, which already sets forward one of the big messages of the book of Deuteronomy is that your disobedience to God causes you to take a far more difficult path. One of the things you'll see in Deuteronomy again and again, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Already the book opens with, look at what has happened because of the prior generation. Forty years wasted. You have thought about that? It is a waste of 40 years because of disobedience. Forty years are gone and we're right back to where we started again. We could have done this. Back at the beginning of Numbers, we could have done that when we left the mountain and taken the 11 day journey. But instead, disobedience causes life difficulties, causes a waste to occur. And that's exactly what happens here as the book opens. The rest of chapter one is Moses explaining to the people, here's how we got here. In fact, if I were to summarize the first four chapters, was that Moses' first sermon? It's simply Moses saying, I want you to know how we got here. I want you to know how did we get to this point? And chapter one gives us a a number of interesting teachings. And as we move through it, we'll see some really big, important ones about the faith that's required to be able to enter the promised land. You'll notice in in chapter one and verse six that where Moses starts the story might surprise you. In recounting the history, he does not start at the Exodus. He does not start at the Passover. He starts at the mountain. He goes back to where the beginning of Numbers is and says, all right, we're back at the mountain. And what God said to do is you've been at this mountain long enough. It is time to go and take the land that I am going to give you. And that's what verse six and verse seven lay out. Verse eight, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your father. So here is God saying, you've been at the mountain long enough. Remember, they spend a little over a year at the mountain. And Moses says, here's what God said. Let's go take the land. It's time to receive the land that God has promised to us. Now, you might think that things are awry, but notice what Moses is doing in verse nine. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. You might remember Moses saying that with all of the disputes and all of the cases and all the things that were coming to Moses. Moses recognized the difficulty in that. But why was it so hard? Look at verse 10. The Lord, your God, has multiplied you. And behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. What Moses stands up and says is God has been faithful to his promise to Abraham. Abraham was promised your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand of the sea. And Moses says, do you see how numerous you all are? 
Do you see that even in the face of our disobedience and rebellion, he has brought us to this point and the promises of God have been fulfilled. But notice he adds to that in verse 11. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised. Moses says God's fulfilling his promise. You are as numerous as the stars of the sky. But then notice what he says next. May it be multiplied a thousand times more. Moses knew this was just the beginning. It wasn't that, well, okay, well, we've got a few million people here, so that's the fulfillment of the promise. There is that nation promise intact and all that was there. Moses stands up and goes, we're going to be bigger than that. (laughs) May God bless us that it's going to be thousands multiplied upon how great we are today. Which has all kinds of new covenant implications of understanding that it wasn't just going to strictly be physical Israel but that the multiplication was going to be widespread. Just as an aside, by the way, have you ever realized why the book of Acts always talks about how their number multiplied, their number multiplied? We do 3,000, 5,000, then we quit with the thousands. We just go, they're multiplying because that's the Abrahamic promise being fulfilled. This is what Moses is speaking about, is that one day it will be multiplied even thousands beyond in that. So Moses expresses that. And so he describes then what was done in setting up judges to be able to hear their cases. And so verse 19, you will notice what he says. Then we set out from Horeb and we went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. I love that Moses does not say the wilderness was easy and I don't know what your problem was. The wilderness was a dreadful and terrifying place to be. I want us to see that parallel is that God does not say that our movement to the promised land is not going to be just really simple and a piece of cake. It's going to be difficult. And Moses says the wilderness journey was difficult. The way that God took us was a challenge. We had obstacles and it was difficult. And so God brought us this way. But notice in verse 20, And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear Or be dismayed. Simple message happens. Go up and take the land. Watch what happens in verse 22. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities of which we must come. Now, when you read the book of Numbers, you didn't know that. In Numbers 13, it just says God commanded them to number those spies and send them up. And Moses steps in and goes, here's actually how that went down. God told us, go take possession of it. I'm giving it to you. And the people said, we need to kind of go check it out first. We need to see which way to go. We need to check out these cities. And obviously God approved of that. But clearly... 
This becomes a test. As I mentioned, the five books of Moses are like volumes. It's like, like I've told you, like watching Star Wars. You have to watch all of them to be able to understand the stuff that happened. In the, you get more information later on so you can go, oh, that's what that meant. Same thing's happening here. It wasn't just God saying, okay, send up some spies and here we go. There's a test involved here. And notice that the people, they were the ones that did not trust in God. And they said, we should send up some people first. Let them spy out the land. God says, all right, go ahead. Just go ahead and spy the land. Was that necessary? Not according to God. God just said, go take it. And yet they did not do that. And so verse 23, the things seem good to me. And I think the implication of that is I inquired of God and God said yes. And so that's what happened. And so they go in and they send in the, the, the spies. The end of verse 25, where if you remember where the word was that was brought to them, it is a good land that the Lord your God is giving us. But look at verse 26. Yet you would not go up But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Why are we here this day? Why has it been 40 years? Why are we standing here at this moment? Because God said, go take the land. And instead of going and taking the land, verse 26 says you would not go up. In fact, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. Verse 27, you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Huge statements right here. You rebelled. You murmured in your tents. And the words that you said were, God hated us and brought us to this point to destroy us. And not only that, verse 28, they said their hearts melted because the people were greater and taller and the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And we've seen the sons of the Anakim here. All of the excuses that they lay out of why things were the way they were. And so here Moses says, here's what happened. I hope you'll remember that next week when we do chapters two through four, those lines will come back into play. Moses is going to retread on that and make a big deal out of that. So keep that in mind. You guys rebelled. You guys said God hates us. You said God brought us here to destroy us. And you said the people were too big and the cities were fortified all the way to the heavens. And so that's why you wouldn't go in. Moses in verse 29 stands up and says to them, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight him, will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. I love what Moses does. He says, You guys said we couldn't do it. You rebelled against what God said. You said the people were too big. They're giants, big cities and all that. And I stood up to you and I said, number one, I don't want you to be afraid. Number two, remember what God did for you in Egypt, because God is going to fight for you in the exact same way. And number three, God compassionately carried you through the wilderness Like a dad carries a son compassionately 
And that's what God is going to do for you. What a great presentation that Moses gives. And I think it's important to note, Moses does not say, now let's get God to give us a fresh new sign to show you why you should have faith. What Moses does is he just goes to the past. You saw how God delivered you out of Egypt and you saw how God carried you through the wilderness like carrying a son, compassionately bringing you through. That's all you needed to know. That's what Moses lays out. We don't need new information. We don't need a new sign. That's all you needed to see. God rescued you in the past and brought you to the present place where you are on the brink of the promised land. Therefore, have faith in God. Look at verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. You would not believe that God would bring you through. In fact, he says, you wouldn't believe even though God was leading you every step of the way. You wouldn't believe when there was a cloud in front of you by day and a fire in front of you by night as the presence of God led you people through the wilderness and yet you still would not believe even though God had been with you. The whole point Moses stands up and says is, you've seen what God has done. Because of what God has done in the past, that is the reason for you to have faith. Everything that God has done in the past is enough for us to be able to have faith in what God is going to do. Unfortunately, the people did not believe that. And so verse 34, God heard your words and was angered and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation was going to see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden. Notice it. Because he has wholly followed the Lord. Moses says, then God rose up and he was angered with that generation. He says, none of you are going to go into the promised land except one. Caleb is designated as different. What makes him different? And notice how Moses is setting up. How do you get into the promised land? You follow with all your heart. You want to get out of the wilderness and enter into the promised land? You be like Caleb and you follow the Lord. With all of your heart. In fact, it is interesting. The very next breath, Moses says, you know what? I'm not even I'm going in. I'm not even going in because of the rebellion that occurred. And notice how Moses not only takes it upon himself, but verse 37, even with me, the Lord was angry on account and on your account and said, you shall not go in there. I think it is so interesting that Moses does, does. He says, God was angry with me, but God was angry with me because of you. And that's fair. 
And the reason why I think he says that, and the reason why I think that's fair, is because people can be a stumbling block and cause you to rebel. People can cause your faith to weaken. We we read through that. And I mean, we're pulling our hair out reading the people of Israel and the constant complaining and how they're wearing Moses down. And Moses says, it is because of you guys, because of what what you did. And yet notice Moses doesn't say, therefore, I don't bear any responsibility. No, no. He owns that. It's still his rebellion. God was still angry with me. You guys put the test before me. And I rebelled against the Lord and the Lord was angry with me. It is such an interesting dynamic that's being pictured is that we can wreck each other's faith. We can harm each other's faith. We can encourage rebellion in others. And Moses is laying that out. I don't think he's just passing the buck and going, boy, you guys made me mess up. (laughs) No, I think he's saying, here's how that went down. Is your guys complaining? It caused me then to make my misstep and rebel against God as well. And so God makes the promise in verse 39, verse 38, Joshua is going to be the one who's going to be the leader who will stand before you and cause Israel to inherit it. Verse 39, and as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in and to them I shall give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. I think this is really really interesting what he says if you remember in the wilderness they said God has caused us to just die here in the wilderness what's going to happen is we're going to go up against the, uh, the, these enemies and God has brought us out here to kill our children in the wilderness and God's response was actually you all are going to die in the wilderness but your children are going to enter so one a reminder of why they stood there that day is God had made a promise, your children will enter. You say your children are not going to enter because you're going to not trust in God. The older generation will die and the younger generation, those who were under 20 years old, they were going to go enter the land. I want to make an aside. One of these Wednesday nights when we get to come back through Deuteronomy, we'll talk a lot about this. But I thought something was fascinating in talking about their children. Remember, the children were defined as the 19-year-olds and down. They were the ones who were not numbered for war. And it's described there as they had no knowledge of good or evil. I think that's interesting. And the reason I think that's interesting and the only reason I feel any compulsion to say anything about this is because I'm a little disturbed the more and more I'm seeing of these little kids who are being baptized and trying to come to faith. Little, little kids. I think we need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that we see in the scriptures that men and women are the ones who are responding in faith before God, that there needs to be an understanding of right and wrong and sin and what God has done. That it's not just merely, yes, I believe in Jesus, but true faith in God. And it is fascinating to me that this is described here. And I don't think this is at all some kind of test that says, okay, the age of accountability is 20. I don't mean that at all. What I just want us to see 
is that we need to be awfully careful about what we are communicating to our children and about the true faith that God is looking for in the heart of a person. The true faith that what God demands and looks for in an individual That they are truly understanding not only what God has done, but what it means to say, I'm going to live my life for you all the rest of my days. I think that's a very big deal. And again, that age certainly fluctuates. But we need to be very careful that we are not communicating to our children, you just need to get in the water. It is about faith. It is about loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And based on that love and that faith, you are responding in submission to God as seen in baptism. That needs to be what's communicated. I find it interesting how God drew that line and said those below, not accountable for this. 20 and up would all perish in the wilderness. Final paragraph 41 to to the very end. Remember what happens next. Then the people say, oh, after we're going to be wandering the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, never mind, God. We'll go up and we'll go take the land. And that infuriates God all the more. (laughs) Because God said, trust me, go take the land. And the people go, oh, no, we can't take it. It's the cities are too tall. The giants are in there. and The people are too scary. And we can't possibly do it. God goes, okay, you don't want the land? Go wander in the wilderness. Well, we don't want to be in the wilderness anymore, so we'll go and fight. And remember... God has them decimated when they attempt to go fight by their own power and might. You will have victory by the power of God. You are not going to do it by your own strength. You're not going to do it on your own will and your own desire. It is going to be only by truly having a faith in God. Three things I want to talk about very quickly tonight in the big idea of what this first chapter and what Moses is doing. Because I want you to think about this for a minute. Why does Moses do all this? It's not like those kids don't know this history. It's not like they have no idea. You know, their parents didn't just die the next day and the kids are out there in the wilderness going, we have no idea what happened to our parents. We had them one day, 40 years. You don't think this was explained for a very long time of why we are in the wilderness for this long. It's only 11 days and we're in the 40th year. Of course they knew this history. Of course they knew why this had happened. Why is Moses going over this? Why is he teaching this? And I believe that what you are seeing here in chapter 1 is a big, big message. This critical characteristic of what you need to have If you're going to leave the wilderness and go to the promised land, you need to have unwavering faith. To enter the promised land requires unwavering faith. That's expressed, I think, in three different ways in this chapter. Number one, unwavering faith does not look to the power of self. True faith does not say, I can do it. Let's do this. You see that in Israel's history in the wilderness over and over again. That's how Moses ends this moment right here in this section. You tried to go get victory by your own power and your own will and your own might, and that didn't work. Why? 
Because the journey into the promised land is not about doing it by your own strength and your own might and your own will, but by the power of God. That's the big message he wants them to first understand. You need to truly have faith in God. When we look to our own power and to our own strength, that is always the recipe for spiritual failure. I'm strong enough. I can do it. No, we can't. We should know by now, with is it fair to say, the millions of sins that we've committed in our life, that trying to succeed by our own power and might is going to fail. We should know this by now. Trying to do it by myself is going to be a complete disaster. This is why the Apostle Paul would speak about needing to put on the whole armor of God and stand in the strength of the Lord, not in the strength of yourself. And yet so often our battle against sin is we're just going to do it ourselves. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get in there and it's going to be me and Satan. And guess what? We lose to him every single time. We need the power of God. We need to depend upon God. We need to rest in his promises and know his word and access God through prayer and depend upon him. But how many times we forget to depend upon God and to see all that God has done for us, to rely upon what God has done. Here they are at this moment when Israel could look back and say, see the Exodus and see the wilderness. Now have faith in what's to come. And think about that's us. The Exodus is the cross. And think about all that's happened in your journey with God since you became a follower of Jesus to this moment. There's your wilderness. Now, do you trust in God going forward or not? What Moses does is he stands up and says, look at your past. Look at what God has done at the cross, if you will, to put it in New Testament terms. The Exodus and the Old Testament. And look how God has carried you to the point to which you're at today. Look how God has brought you through in the midst of our sins, in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our disasters. God has carried you like a father carries a son and has compassionately brought you to this point. That was the basis of faith that they were supposed to have. Don't look to self. Look at how God has carried you. Number two. They were supposed to have enough faith to not listen to the crowd. (laughs) It's interesting how Moses brings that up in chapter 1 quite a few times where he speaks about the failure that they had, that they would listen to the masses. And I think it's so interesting that he brings that up because so often that's what our tendency is to do is that we will listen to other people. And that is a failure as we listen to people who are not spiritually minded and they lead us away from having true faith. Why did Israel do what they did? Here comes 12 spies and 10 of them say, oh, no. And nobody wanted to listen to what Moses said or what Caleb said. We'll listen to the masses. We'll listen to the crowd. 
It's a common problem that's described in the scriptures. You might remember in John chapter 9, there's a man born blind and the parents are brought into question. And the parents refuse to say anything about this miracle that had happened to their son for fear of being cast out of the synagogue. We're afraid of the crowd. We're afraid to express faith. We're afraid to take a stand because of what might happen to us. You might remember the Apostle Paul, how he said it in Romans 2.28, when basically he said what a true Jew is, a true follower of God, a true person of God, is a person who finds his praise from God, not from people. They receive glory from God. And not from people. Friends, that is why Caleb, I believe, is designated from the rest of that generation. The guts and faith that he has to stand up and tell a crowd that is in full revolt. We can do this because God's with us. We can do this because God's with us. He believed. Everybody else wasn't. And he was willing to make a stand, even against the crowd. Moses praises Caleb in this sermon. And it's a reminder to us to have that same kind of faith, to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. For that's what unwavering faith looks like. Number three, unwavering faith does not freeze or disintegrate under the fear of what lies ahead. That's the fear that they have at this moment. And it's the essence of true faith. If we really boil it down, what God is calling for us in faith is to believe that God will act for us again. As again, I was mentioning to the kids as I was teaching them Romans 5, one of my absolute favorite chapters. I think I preached like seven sermons to you out of that chapter because it's, it's so great. And you have the declaration that's made there. If while you're enemies and ungodly and sinners, Christ died for us. How much more is God going to do things for us now that we're with him in this life? Now that we've been reconciled to him. Do we suppose that we're not supposed to have no faith in the future now? No, now we have all the reason for faith. Look at what he did when you were enemies. Now that you're reconciled, what do you suppose he's doing That's what Moses is preaching to the people. You guys were a bunch of idolaters in Egypt. And God sent Moses and delivered the people out of Egypt through mighty wonders crossing the Red Sea. They rebel in the wilderness and God still brings them to this very point to enter the land. And Moses is just saying, why would you fear the future when you see all that God has done in the past? How could you be fearful of what God would possibly do to think that God would not carry you through after he's carried you through for 40 years in the wilderness? Of course, he will carry you through. Of course, he will be with you. Have faith in God in spite of difficulties, in spite of temptation and trials. That God will carry you as chapter 1 verse 31 says. You have seen how the Lord your God carried you. I love that image. You've seen how God carried you. As a man carries his son. All the way that you went. Until you came to this place.
Let me end with the warning that I think the chapter has. Wavering faith encourages others to waver in their faith. That's the story of that first generation. Our wavering of faith can cause us to also have others fall in this journey on the way to the promised land. We need to think about our faith in those terms, that our rebellion can encourage others to rebel. We need to think about how our faith or our lack of faith can bring changes to good or to the bad in the faith of others. Our wavering faith or our unwavering faith can make a very big difference in the lives of other people. And I hope that we would then be ones who would desire that promised land so much that we would not waver in our faith, but we would look to God no matter what experiences we have. I'm excited about this book. It is rich in teaching us about what it means to be a follower of God. And what an amazing introduction that Moses has to the sermon and saying, here's why we're at where we're at. Because we needed to have unwavering faith like Caleb. And unfortunately, your parents did not have it. If we want to enter the promised land, we need faith. And we encourage you to have that faith. We ask if we can help you to have that faith. That's what we're here for. We're trying to help you as you help us in reaching the promised land. You ready to turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God who came to this world, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and was risen from the dead three days later. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you come to the Lord Jesus while we stand and while we sing?